Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Garrett Broad, Associate Professor of Communication Studies at Rowan University, and I'm very happy to be your host for this conversation with Loka Ashwood, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Kentucky. Loka is the author of Empty Fields, Empty Promises, a state-by-state guide to understanding and transforming the right to farm. The book is an impressive team effort, written along with Amy Emley, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Mississippi State University, Lindsey Kuhn, a public defender in Ramsey County, Minnesota, and staff attorney with the Farmers Legal Action Group, Alan Franco, Assistant Federal Public Defender for the Districts of Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island, and Danielle Diamond, Visiting Fellow at the Brooks McCormick Jr. Animal Law and Policy Program at Harvard Law School. Since the late 1970s, right-to-farm laws have been adopted by states across the U.S. to limit nuisance lawsuits against farmers engaged in standard agricultural practices. But who really benefits from right-to-farm laws? And what can be done to promote real agricultural, rural, and environmental justice? Empty Fields, Empty Promises offers valuable history and incisive commentary on these questions. Our guest today can tell us much more about it, Loka Ashwood, welcome to the New Books Network. Garrett, thank you so much. I am very excited to be here and able to join you. Wonderful. So to get us started, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional background? Yes. So I'm uh, what folks call a rural sociologist or an environmental sociologist. And uh, so my work is uh, what we do as sociologists is we really care about the health of society. And as an environmental and rural sociologist, my concern is the health of society in relation to the environment, specifically for rural people. So agriculture is right there where it's at when you think about um, the environment as well as society Mm -hmm. and the relationship between the two. So I do a lot of work on agriculture and right to farm laws have a lot of justice questions embedded in them that have to do with agriculture uh, justice in terms of agriculture, justice, justice in terms of the environment, and then justice in terms of rural people and their rights. Great. And and before we get to the project uh, in detail, how did you come to write this Empty Fields, Empty Promises with this really interesting group of colleagues? I mentioned other sociologists, uh, public defender, uh, 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 another legal scholar, uh, and uh, assistant federal public defender. How did this group come together? <laughs> yeah, I heard you, you know, it's, they're so impressive, aren't they? When you were talking about each of them, I was thinking, yeah, this amazing <laughs> team of folks that I've gotten to work with, and they are amazing. Um, part of it was just like the absolute pleasure and luck of, of getting the opportunity to work with an amazing PhD student. That's Amy M. Lay, who's second author on the book. I, I met her at the University of Kentucky and got to advise her separately on her dissertation project. And She's just a whiz. I mean, she's she's so smart. So um, she helped work on this while she was a PhD student here at the University mm-hmm. of Kentucky before she went on to Mississippi State. 
Um, and Lindsay is this phenomenal lawyer with Farmers Legal Action Group. Uh, and so this project came out of a grant project with the United States Department of Agriculture and Farmers Legal Action Group was part of that project. And um, Lindsay came on our team to write the book. We didn't set out to write a book. Um, okay. It just kind of emerged from our research together. Um, and so that's how I met Lindsay was, was through that USDA grant. Um, and then Alan Franco, uh, through the through Susan Schneider, she's a professor of law at University of Arkansas's program in um, agriculture and food law. And Alan was a student, another amazing student in that program who saw that there was an opportunity to do some some research. And he joined in on the research project and, again, was like, he's, he's really passionate and more um, a, about... Uh, engaging with the the law directly in the space of the courtroom. So he brought this this different kind of energy to the project that was great. And then Danny Diamond, um, I have I had written a paper with her in the past on right to farm laws. And she came in kind of at the end of the project to help us make sure we had all the cases we could possibly find publicly. So that then we all, you know, we initially just started with these state specific summaries and then we built it out into this national analysis and everybody you know, we, we, we kind of limped through COVID doing this mm. work, but we kept doing it through COVID. We got these summaries done um, and up online in an interactive forum, forum during COVID. And, and we kept together. We kept it together. I think sometimes barely, you know, we're all, <laughs> like I said, we were limping through it. But um, it, it, we just, I think we liked working together. And um, even though we were at a distance, different places across the country, um, you know, we build on each other's strengths and also we challenged each other some because I'm a sociologist. Yeah. Um, and as I mentioned, Amy's a sociologist and we think differently than lawyers. Um, so we challenged each other often when it came to doing this research project, but we came to a shared place of understanding. Um, I think that makes this book like really practical and dynamic and hopefully accessible because we would constantly challenge each other about our technical jargon <laughs> that we use that the other person didn't understand. So it, it certainly yeah. is, you know, while it's a, a topic that, that, you know, is technical in some ways as we'll get to, um, the book is written in a, a really accessible way. It starts with kind of broader overviews of the, of the history and of, of some of these key concerns. And as you note, um, there's these state by state guides that follow before uh, a broader concluding section. I think it's really interesting. You talked there about the, the, sociologist's mind and approach versus the, the legal mind and approach. I wonder if, is there, is there anything in particular there that, you know, for others listening who maybe have engaged in these kinds of collaborations or might want to, what, what's it like when you put yeah. some sociologists in a room with legal scholars? What do you <laughs> folks bring as sociologists? What do the, the legal scholars bring? Yeah. I mean, you know, on a general level, one of the most beautiful things that has happened for me is when I talk to lawyers, they'll talk about what's how the law, how the law works in practice mm -hmm. in the courtroom or outside of the courtroom. But I have a continuous focus on how it's impacting people. Mm -hmm. So I'm constantly saying, well, this is the way that technically you think these laws should be working, but this is the way that they're actually playing out in people's lives. Mm. So that that's, that's the general, I think the over the overarching way in which we learn from each other. But, but the second way is we had to, um, compile a massive data set and code it and code all of these laws and all of these cases across the country, every, every single state's 
original and then current uh, right to farm statutes, and then all of the case law associated with them. So we had to come up with a code book together. And that was the most contentious part of the project to figure out, you know, what are the terms we're going to use to code and how we're going to make sure we're coding things the same way. Hmm. So that was that, that took us the most to get through. I think like we, we all care about the same ends, the same goals of improving as society, but um, getting there in terms of method was, was probably the hardest part. Yeah, great. Interesting. So let's get to it. We, we've been discussing uh, sort of in the abstract, these right to farm laws, but let's get to some basic definitions in history here. What are right to farm laws and how did they come about? So right to farm laws, I think it's important to talk about them historically. They mostly came to the forefront during the 1980s. We were in the middle of a, a terrible farm crisis. And I'm sure some of your listeners know what that farm crisis was like because they lived through it. Hmm. Um, And farmers were going out of business in droves. We had farmer suicides hitting record highs. Um, Land prices collapsed and commodity prices bottomed out. And so there was a a crisis of culture and um, a crisis of ethic, really, in rural areas. And I think people needed to do something to try to make it better. And at that time, I think, um, and, and I think this still lingers today, but I think it was more pronounced then, is one of the ideas was that, you know what, urban people just really don't understand what's going on in rural communities or what their struggles are with agriculture. And especially those ones that are moving out to rural areas. Um, they don't like the sound of a, of a calf bellering. Uh, they can't stand the squeals of a pig. They find the, the, the smells of agriculture and, and the sounds and the, the light pollution, right? In mm. quotes, all that to be a problem. So, you know, on on one hand, these laws were introduced as a way to say we're going to save agriculture and we're going to help rural communities by making sure those urbanites, right, they can't sue us because they have problems with everyday agricultural operations. Now, um, and that's how legislators supported them and passed them was under that that language. Now, I think that the story is much more complex than that or maybe okay. just forthright. I think we also had a time of intense consolidation happening in U.S. agriculture and specifically the American Farm Bureau Federation and their state-specific chapters um, saw an opportunity, a cultural opportunity to pass these laws as a way to save the family farm, which in practice from their very inception were um, not written to protect family farms, actually only in one original statute, and that was in Minnesota. Did it actually explicitly say the right to farm protection only applies to a family farm? We never mm-hmm. found that in any of the other original statutes that we looked at. So in practice, in actual legal language, right, it didn't say it was going to protect family farms. But if you if you look at the preambles to these laws, which are their justifications, or the legislators who were supporting them, they'll always were talking about family farms. This is going to save the family farms. This is going to help them. Um, but actually, uh, we found in our analysis that um, it was it was just an opportune time to exploit that conflict and then help pave the way for larger operations through um, passing right to farm laws. You know, you might not be able to have a direct answer to this, but do you think the folks writing those preambles saying this is to save the family farm, were, were they sincere in the belief that this was going to be doing that? Were they corrupted by industry and putting up a front? Was it some combination or something? Yeah, muddled? yeah oh. that's. That's a good question. You know, I I, I, I was lucky enough um, to run into a North Dakota legislator, a state legislator, 
who supported uh, the passage of one of these laws. He was in, I, I, I don't know, I could guess his age. I didn't ask him, but I'd say he was probably in his 80s. And he was horrified hmm. to find out what the actual implications of these laws were. So I, I don't think that um, some of the legislators who supported them did so from a place of malice. I, I think that they were desperate. I think they were responding to a crisis and anything that was on the table was was something that they were going to try to support if it said it could help. So, but that's a weakness of this book and this this project is it's not qualitative. We don't have primary interviews with key actors. So I'm I really can't answer your yeah. question defini- definitively. No, no, yet. that's fine. It's just it's just an interesting thing to think about. You know, sometimes these stories are told about these, you know, with the assumption that there's these backroom deals and they had this big grand plan all along and maybe somebody did, but but I'd imagine there's a lot of, you know, good faith efforts that went into this yes. that, that maybe didn't have yes. the outcomes that were intended. So let's get to that because you are deeply critical in this book of uh, RTF laws, uh, right to farm laws. I might use that acronym as you folks use in the book uh, in terms of their practice. And so let's talk through some of your biggest critiques. Let's start with this question of, of who are the most likely beneficiaries of RTF laws? Who who stands to gain? Who wins the cases that are brought? Yes, that's a great question. So I, I mentioned we developed a code book uh, so we could keep track of, you know, who won or who lost uh, lawsuits that claimed a right to farm defense. So they explicitly, the merits of the, the outcomes of the, the case, the merits of the case were determined based on a right to farm defense. And we were actually surprised by our own findings. Um, so we coded, for example, if we knew definitively if if um, a party, either a defendant or a plaintiff, was a CAFO, which means a concentrated animal feeding operation, that's a large-scale animal operation, industrial scale. If it was a business firm, which means that, you know, we could see it had like an LLC, an LLP, an Inc., a Corp., et cetera, on the end of its name. Um, if it was a governmental body, just broadly conceived, that could be, you know, from a municipality to county government to state government, et cetera. A resident, you know, somebody who lived um, uh, proximate to the said agricultural operation, they talked about their home, right? A landowner, somebody who may have owned owned land and was a plaintiff or a defendant, but didn't necessarily live on it. And then a homeowner, which you'd say, well, isn't that the same thing as resident? Not necessarily, because mm-hmm. you could, you know, rent your property. And then um, the other one that we coded that really was at the heart of our research was what we call a sole proprietor farmer, which means a farmer that operates by their own name. Mm-hmm. So just like by by my name, Loka, mm-hmm. or by by your name, Garrett, right? That that we don't, we're not legally incorporated. Mm-hmm. And what we found out of those, um, so that'd be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven party types that concentrated animal feeding operations were the most likely to win when they went to court using a right to farm defense. So 69% of the time. Now, the least likely party to to win, this was the shocker for us, was the sole proprietor farmer mm-hmm. that won um, only 41% of the time when there was a, a right to farm, a, a case determined based on right to farm merits. And that sole so, proprietor farmer, that's that's usually when we use a term like family farm that you mentioned earlier, that's usually the the image that's evoked there, right? Uh, of that that person going by their own name. Can can you say just a little bit though on on that? You know, is were is family farm a, an official designation um, here? Can a family farm be owned by a, a? Can there be a CAFO that's a family farm? What, what do we make? Because this term gets used all the time in in debates about food and ag. 
Yes, it does. It, and so we actually, we tried to code for family ties and it was, it was just impossible for us to do based on the cases. So for example, if there was a limited liability company, a, a limited liability company, an LLC um, that had some innocuous name, um, like uh, Valley LLC, uh, most of the time when we would read the, the the case details, we couldn't tell if there was a family member or not. Mm-hmm. And since we couldn't definitively determine that across cases, we didn't code for it. Okay. So that, that that's a technical response. But but I do want to say, if you look at USDA numbers, um, most of the folks that are engaged in agriculture, uh, the vast majority of farms are sole proprietor farms. If you look at USDA numbers, they may not be, they're not producing the most from those farms, but they right. do account for by and large most of the farms in the United States. Mm-hmm. And those are the folks that are losing the most with right to farm laws, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what's the real problem here, though? What are some of the harms that you've documented and that the the files that that you reviewed documented to local communities or to other proprietors, other agriculturists? Like, what what are the what are the issues here? Um, What are we actually seeing in terms of the harms? Yeah. So, you know, if you live next to a concentrated animal feeding operation, it drastically impacts your everyday life. Uh, So we chronicle a few different families uh, in the book whose lives were turned upside down when a concentrated animal feeding operation was sited next to where they live. So these are often multi-generational farms, right? But people who most likely are not working full-time as a farmer because it's very hard to make a living just as a farmer. Most of the time they have off-farm incomes, but they Mm -hmm. still stayed on the family land. Um, we talk about a couple of different, we, we start the book off with, with two different families, one in Indiana, and that's because that's the state where CAFOs win the most nationally is Indiana. A lot That was another surprise for us because you don't hear enough about Indiana. And the other one was North Carolina. That came in second. That would have right. been my Every- guess. <laughs> right. Yeah. Same Especially here. given the, 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 the pig production in, in North Carolina is, is yeah. eating. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, Indiana just has a mix with dairy in there too, which is you know surprises a lot of us. But we talked about um, Paul Lewis. Uh, you, you know his his family treasured their land. He'd gotten his land from his mother, and 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 they're a black family, so that land ownership and that access to land and holding on to it meant everything. Um, in the mid '90s, a concentrated animal feeding operation with with about fifteen thousand hogs started operating just 600 yards away from from where he lived, from where Mr. Lewis lived. And, you know, you can read the case details of, of, of this particular case. And I mean, it, it was terrible. There are smart swarms of flies and other insects that made it impossible for him to sit on the porch anymore. Um, there was odor and dust particles that clung to the clothes. They couldn't hang them out on the line. So you can no longer hang clothes out of the line. Uh, Mr. Lewis, in his case, he talks about, you know, his asthma, chronic skin disorders, sinus problems, depression. Um, and the depression is another huge um, mental health impact from living next to CAFOs. Um, and, and in this case, Mr. Lewis was facing up against Murphy Brown um, LLC, which is a Smithfield company, which is owned by WH Group, right? That's a multinational corporation that mostly has Chinese invest- investors and owners, WH Group. So that that's who it's cited next to him. He ended up losing 
in court. Um, and we can talk more about that. But and, and another couple that I think a lot about and a lot of property owners, of course, are older or elderly. Um, that's that's how it works, because that's often when you can acquire property is when you get older. Um, and I, in Indiana, there was this particular case that really stuck with me, and that was uh, Glenn and, and Phyllis Parker, this elderly couple, you know, that had built and lived on their life, their lifelong um, home. Uh, and, and, and Mr. Parker had also inherited his land from his mother. So it's a similar story to Mr. Lewis. But um, he mostly rented out his land to a local grain farmer. That's what lots of folks do in the Midwest. Um, in a in a in a one smaller family dairy operation, then incorporated and became a concentrated animal feeding operation with 900 cows. Um, and so at, at that time, his wife, Mrs. Parker, had always struggled with depression, but she had to become reclusive because she could no longer go outside and garden because of the stench, um, and she couldn't go outside and observe the birds. Um, they, they no longer could enjoy their property and their home the way that they did before. So they filed a nuisance lawsuit and they, they lost their claims because uh, through a right to farm defense. In fact, in, in this case, um, the Parkers were not considered farmers because they didn't have, uh, it, because they didn't farm full time. Right. So that's another really interesting part about this is who's considered a farmer and who isn't under right to farm laws. And so do, do are farmers given a different status as, as plaintiffs than an, another resident would be if, if yes, there's a KFO next to me and I'm a, just a normal resident, is that different from my ability to sue, uh, if I'm also engaged in agriculture? Yes, it, it, but it depends on, you know, who you might call a farmer and I might call a farmer right. is very different than how on a state-specific basis they'll define what a farmer is. And then the courts will often refine what it means to be a farmer. So almost unilaterally, unless you're selling um, unilaterally, if you don't have a farm identification number with the farm service agency, you're not going to be considered a farm. And then even if you do, they'll call you a hobby farmer if you're not working full time on the farm. Mm -hmm. So there's this privileging of larger farms over smaller ones and residential farms over large absentee farms, right? So you'll see this play out in the case law, but you'll also see it on a state specific level who gets to claim to be a farmer. And if you're growing food for yourself, unfortunately, that doesn't count. I mean, mm -hmm. that's sort of counterintuitive, right? You think that's what we'd want more of, but these laws are explicitly benefiting more absentee owners. And they just make it really difficult for anybody who's not engaged, you know, who's not a farmer to, to sue. But it sounds like you've got some standing, maybe if you're a competing farm nearby. Is, is that is that how it works? Oh, that's a really great point. You know, um, there is incre increasingly reduced capacity for certain types of folks to have standings so to file a nuisance suit. For example, North Carolina um, does not allow you now to file a nuisance suit if you are a renter hmm. or if you're not, uh, or if you're not the real R-E-A-L property owner, right. which means that, you know, if, if my husband and I both wanted to sue, but the title to the land was under my husband's name, I wouldn't have rights to sue. Only he would, or vice versa, if the if the the, the title or the deed for the land was under my name. So um, there are certain states that are are pulling back more and more on who can sue. But typically, with common law and property rights, 
anybody could sue, right? right? Anybody could go to court. Anybody could be a plaintiff and you could sue any defendant. But but states like North Carolina are really clamping down on who can actually even be a plaintiff. I, I want to come back to something you said, the story you were telling about the, the folks who live near the CAFO, um, that it had been a small dairy and then it became a, a large, you know, a large mega dairy, right? Um, mm -hmm. How come, you know... Well, how come I can't sue them, right? You get, tell me a little bit about this, uh, the, what's called the time and longevity statuses that keep some of these enterprises in place, sometimes, despite sometimes dramatic changes in their actual operation, yeah. right? You would figure if, if there's this huge change on my land or adjacent to my land, I might be able to say something about that, but, but they've, they've, they've prevented that. Tell me about those time and longevity statuses. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild, isn't it? That's been one of the biggest changes that we found in right to farm laws is there used to be this provision of in, in initial right to farm laws that what was there first or who was there first had immunity from um, a nuisance litigation. So that would mean if if Garrett had his farm first and then Loka moved in and cited a bigger farm next to Garrett, Garrett would get to have the right to farm protections, not LOCA. Well, most in most states, it's it's not that way anymore. There's been amendments passed to right to farm laws, like in Indiana and North Carolina, that say just once an operation, right? An operation is how these agriculture is defined. Once it's up and running, for example, for a year, you can't file a nuisance suit against it. Hmm. So there's no what was there first protections. It's just once a facility cited. Once it's up for running for a year, you know, good luck to you. After that time, you can't file a lawsuit. And, you know, even most farmers I talk to at the onset of this project don't even know about right to farm laws, let alone mm -hmm. the general public, right? So they're not going to be watching. Is it 365 days, you know, since this operation right. has been up and running? But, but but what if I'm next to a dairy with 20 cows, they're there for five years, and then they decide they're going to become 250 cows or 1,000 cows? Yeah, yeah. Do, with that big change, shouldn't shouldn't there be some change in my ability to, you know, uh, prevent this uh, from being uh, on my land? Even if they've been there, it might be the same company, but they've dramatically changed what they're doing. Does that not matter? I think it does. But unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of states don't. So, uh, you know, 34% of states say that you're protected, even if your boundaries or your size change. You know, uh, a chunk of states say you're protected even if you start using a new technology. You're even protected if you produce a new product. So if you change from having, you know, goats to having hogs, or if you change from growing um, pumpkins to having a hog CAFO. Uh, so those are other ways in which right-to-farm laws are slipping in all these protections for wow. facilities so they can change dramatically what they're doing and still be protected from using suits. Yeah, so that that's troubling and concerning. And and it also seems like, as you note, that some states are, are kind of worse than others, right? And so a good deal of this book, as we discussed, breaks down these RTF laws across all 50 states. Um, in general, how do state and local dynamics, especially when it comes to business and government, how do they shape the way different RTF laws are implemented? And and why isn't this a uniform thing across the country? Is is there value in having this difference state by state? And and if if is there also some downside in terms of what we see uh, with the, the business and government dynamics at these different state levels? Mm -hmm. that's, that's such a big question. 
I'll start small to your big sure. and important question, which is kind of about states' rights, right? That That's your big question, but I'll start small, which is what we found, <laughs> yeah. uh, which I actually think is really, really important. Uh, we found that by far the Midwest is the most burdened in terms of litigation pertaining to right to farm laws. And this is this is an important finding in two ways. If you look at this, if you look at this geographically and regionally, a lot of people just just that, and they're like me. I'm in the southeast. I'm in Kentucky. Um, that the southeast would have the most litigation pertaining to um, right to farm laws because that's where we dump most environmental injustices in the United States is in the south, and in particularly the deep south. But we see that this is um, that the most acute burden of um, litigation as well as CAFO wins are happening in the Midwest. And we understand this as what we call um, uh, the path to poverty in the Midwest. Like this is a, this is what we call a mid-burden. This is the creation of rural poverty through dispossession of rights happening in the Midwest right now. Now, you know, um, we could squabble over the details of the Midwest and the Southeast because in the Southeast, you know, but one of the important stats that we cite in the book is that business firms using right to farm laws are 3.7 times more, more win more often than than um, governmental bodies. So mm-hmm. that's just that's just staggering. That means that the government doesn't really take a role in right to farm laws or, or they don't become um, a, either a plaintiff or a defendant, depending on the case. Whereas if you look at the northeast you know, governmental entities win twice as often as business firms and 14 times more than CAFO. So in the Northeast, we see the government actually as a defender of the public interest, whereas it's mostly absent, particularly in the Southeast. And it's taking a lesser role in most of the Midwest, which with some important exceptions like Michigan. So that that's like the, the geographical trends, but another really important thing to think about. Um, we used USDA um, numbers for, um, uh, it would be inventory numbers for uh, different animal sectors is what the USDA would call them. So we can look at a state specific level and see who is producing the most broilers, the most cattle, the mo- most dairy, the most hogs, the most layers or timber. We actually included timber on this as mm-hmm. well. Um, and what we found is that the states that are producing the most, for example, hogs, layers, um, milk cows, uh, they're the states where CAFOs are winning the most. Mm-hmm. Now what, in essence, what we see is that the states that have the most production are the places where the people are losing the most and uh, the right to farm defense is being used the most aptly by corporate interests. And you might say, well, duh. <laughs> but that's really important because it's yeah. showing specific business interests that are benefiting from these laws to the detriment of um, property owners, right? So it's not the equal application of the law. And it's cer- certainly not equal defense of property rights based on the U.S. Constitution or state-specific state con- constitutions. It's saying if you're a specific type of dominant business in this state, you get to win more. Yeah, and, and it really you know, makes you think too about what's happening on the, on the judicial level, uh, because they're the ones ultimately making these decisions. And so, you know, again, whether it's just folks who are, uh, 
you know, amenable to the arguments of those corporations or there's something else going on, just kind of deeply rooted within uh, some of these political and, and, and legal cultures, um, clearly, you know, having some negative outcomes for, for everyday people. Um, you've already mentioned a bunch of these different states, um, but there's a few that you focus on and, and seem particularly interested. And you've already mentioned Indiana as a kind of interesting uh, case. And then, you know, a state in the Northeast, maybe something like Massachusetts. So, you know, how could we compare a state with like Indiana to a state like Massachusetts? They both have right to farm laws, but they take very different shape, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, like, it, yeah, in, in Indiana, if you look at the cases where CAFOs have concentrated animal feeding operations have won, um, you'll see that CAFOs win by drawing on those kinds of provisions that I, I mentioned earlier. Like, if you've been in existence for more than one year, or if boundaries or size change, or if the locality around you change, you still um, have a defense against nuisance suits. You're immune from nuisance suits. Um, but if you look at Massachusetts, um, although it has, it'll provide the one-year immunity provision like Indiana has, it does not have any of those other accompanying protections. Like you're, you're protected if your technology changes, et cetera. Um, so those extra provisions, you know, that you can change basically in any way you want and still be considered to have that, that immunity after a year in operations that's really helping um, uh, CAFOs in Indiana win versus in Massachusetts, no CAFO has mm -hmm. ever won utilizing a right to farm law. Um, so what, what we talk about is how there's core and periphery dynamics within our nation. So we have periphery states and periphery communities that are serving the core and more urban or wealthy states and communities. And it's, it's driving a lot of inequality that we're mm -hmm. seeing right now. Yeah. And at that periphery, we often see lower income communities, communities of color, those communities that are often the, 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 the subjects of environmental injustice, like you document in this book. Um, but but the book isn't all doom and gloom. It also does have some kind of optimistic and hopeful visions for what what things could look like and how things could be done differently. The final section of the book is focused on cultivating democracy in agriculture. So I'd love to explore a few key ideas in there. So First, you call for a different path forward that considers, and I'm quoting here, farming rights relative to the homes of those who live within the space of agriculture. And you use terms like homemaking and social ecology yeah. to make this case. So can you tell us more about these ideas? You know, what is homemaking and social ecology and how would that make a difference when yeah. it comes to um, making farming rights uh, kind of work for those who live within the spaces of agriculture? Oh, I just want to say thank you for noticing those two items. <laughs> I guess we can't call them items, but it is very hopeful. And it also just, it begs the question of why don't we talk about agriculture in terms of our homes? Hmm. Are the homes and the people, the heartbeat of the home that can help connect all these things that have been treated very disparate by right to farm laws that have, have led to division and so we called for, you know, an agriculture of home. What if we embedded the protection of home and the privileging of home within right to farm laws? And it, that's not the same thing as a family. A home can be chosen. Doesn't have to be explicitly defined around bloodlines, which can get so confusing anyway. We do that in the anti-corporate farming laws and it hasn't really worked. But what if we actually embed, like we're going to protect people whose homes are connected to the land, mm. whose homes are connected to agriculture, 
because they know directly what it feels like to have the social ecological impacts of agriculture. So their farming is part of society and it's part of ecology because their bodies are literally on the front line of what's happening. So they make choices differently. And I, and I think that that also gets away from this division of agriculture, a, a, this division of agriculture from people and the land from people. I think that's wrongheaded. I think our, our best social ecological future is keeping people on the land because they're the barometers of the land's health and our community's health. And so that's, that's what we mean by home making. Let's bring the home back into agriculture and not keep stripping it out. Yeah, and and related to that discussion, you you advocate for more support for small and medium sized farms, really arguing that they're more beneficial for communities and sustainability. And so I'd love to hear you know you make that case, and then I'd also um, what if uh, you know kind of a, a CAFO lobbyist was sitting here, um, and he would say you know that all sounds well and good, but but that's not the way of farming in 2024 and beyond. You know we need large scale corporate agriculture, that's going to be what's able to deliver low-cost, efficient food for the nation, for the globe. It's going to be able to feed what people are demanding. Um, so make the case uh, why that corporate lobbyist maybe is wrong, or or make the more positive case for why you think uh, support for small and, medium, small and medium-sized farms is important. Yeah, well, uh, you know, first off, that capo lobbyist, I'm sure, is making a lot <laughs> of money, right? I, I just want to start there. We don't want to forget about that. But I'd say the emblematic example that um, shows how that line of thinking is faulting is is the COVID night the COVID nineteen pandemic. So if we think about hog production in the COVID nineteen pandemic, what happened is you had the hot spots for COVID contraction and deaths were at processing facilities. We know this definitively. We saw it all over the news, and those were mostly immigrant laborers who died. Right, because for a long period of time, political powers in various states, especially Iowa, were pushing to not have those plants closed. Right. Well, eventually they had to slow down for periods of times and be closed. And what that meant in terms of the commodity chain is what do you do for those hogs that are in the farrowing sites, the gestation sites, and the finishing sites? Because that industrial mindset, it's like a chain, right? That has to keep pushing and pumping. And because it's so consolidated, there was no flexibility. There was no capacity for creativity. So what happened is we had millions of hogs euthanized mm-hmm. and died because they couldn't be processed. And the farmers didn't have the, the farmers, I should say the capo operators, when it came to their bottom line, it didn't make sense to keep feeding a bunch of hogs in a finishing facility, right? And waiting eventually for um, the processing sites to open back up. Right. So you'd say, well, wouldn't that bankrupt those companies? Well, it didn't because the USDA made sure to subsidize that. Sure. So um, you can look at the government uh, the government accountability office and their review of the coronavirus food assistance program. And you can see the billions of dollars that were paid to keep these operations running. And I think probably one of the, the crudest and most unfortunate one was the USDA's 2022 spot market hog pandemic program. So that gave um, these capo operators $54 per head for up to 10,000 hogs um, and to, 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 to euthanize them or to turn off the, fed, the, the fans and let them suffocate from the fumes of the hog facilities, right? Um, and what's also crazy about this is we don't even know who the owners are that are benefiting from these subsidies. 
And that's one of the things I think our government is really ramping up and doing a good job on catching up on this now is we've got to know who we're actually giving subsidies to. Yeah. Who are the owners that we are benefiting that are receiving the subsidies from these operations? Is it WH Group? Is it Smithfield Foods that we mentioned earlier? Or are these people who are embedded in place that can help their communities, right? So um, I would say that it's not more efficient. Um, it's actually putting our entire food system in a vulnerable place because we're facing more climate events. And this isn't going to be our last pandemic. We've got to have a food system that's nimble. And this is a dependent food system that wouldn't work without government subsidies. So what yeah. is this efficiency? I mean, and right, it's, 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 it's an interesting question, right? What if what if we remove those, you know, those those supplements? What if we remove those subsidies? What if we move the, the, the many su supports that exist, often not necessarily direct subsidies, but various ways that, uh, as you know, they're they're externalizing negative costs, whether it's to yes. workers, whether it's to the animals themselves, whether it's to other public health you know, issues like the, the, the water or the air that's being polluted yes. for the neighbors or for, you know, broader communities and water tables. Um, it, it does. It does. I think beg the question of what do we really mean by efficiency, and, and how are we defining that? And I think that's something your analysis here um, helps us ask that question in, in, in a specific case study of these of these right to farm laws. So, yeah, so you're so you're so right that these are also these are also forcible takings. When you can't get any compensation for your loss of property rights, somebody is forcibly acquiring certain elements of your property rights from you. Right. Boy, that's a cash cow yep. for these capo operators, right? When they can take other people's property rights to participate in this sort of consolidated agriculture that has um, environmental justice implications. So very well said. <laughs> Thank you. So, so yeah, excuse me for, for pontificating a little bit. You know, I, when I first picked this book up, I didn't know that CAFOs were going to be so central, um, although I should have mm. guessed it uh, as someone who also is really interested in that and that issue in particular. Um, but, you know, it, it's not surprising if you kind of look at some of the worst excesses of U.S. agriculture and increasingly global agriculture, um, that animal food production is, is so often at the center of it. And I would argue at the center of ways we need to be rethinking uh, how our policy and, and agricultural practices operate. And so coming back to the RTF law specifically, then, you know, what would you say should be done? Is there a place for reformed version? I mean, you mentioned Massachusetts does certain things that maybe is, you know, it makes these somewhat useful in certain contexts. Um, or do you think we'd be better off just scrapping them and getting rid of RTF laws uh, entirely? Um, if you do think reforms are plausible, are there particular reforms that you would prioritize if, if we did go that route? It's... Garrett, that's such an important question. I've been asked that by, you know, by farmers and people in, in different states. And I always say, and, you know, the same goes for New Jersey and Pennsylvania, is that, first of all, it's what you want, mm. you know, and what you think is necessary. The people in these states who are experiencing what's happening with agriculture in their rural communities and their urban ones, because right to farm laws also impact urban spaces. Um, they know best. They know best also what I would call the political opportunity structure. But we kind of run through, you know, some various aggregate ideas about, you know, what people could consider just to help get the juices flowing is, is what I would say. And yeah, of course, in some cases like Indiana, maybe it should just be repealed mm -hmm. and there should be no more right to farm law. But maybe that doesn't make sense to the people of Indiana. And it makes a lot more sense for us to make sure to remove those provisions that are making those CAFOs win. Like, you know, you're going to have to be there first 
if you want to enjoy a right to farm defense. And no, that doesn't mean you get protected if you use a new technology, if you change your mode of agriculture completely. If there's a new owner, right? I'm sorry, that's not, you don't get to keep the same protections. Hmm. You know, all of that. Another huge one is that we're very disturbed about is that core costs are just being awarded to defendants who are typically CAFOs, right? Um, so some states say that stipulate that if you lose a right to farm uh, case, that you have to, that if you're the plaintiff and you lose, you have to pay the defendant's court costs, but not the other way around, hmm. right? So things like that are, are really specific things that could be removed. Um, and then, you know, in return, you know, say that if you're going to enjoy a right to farm law, you've got to say who your owners are including your firm heritage, um, we're just not going to let CAFOs have right to farm protections. Um, and another thing is considering different amendments that protect the rights, like the right to clean water. For example, our codifying, like Pennsylvania codify, codifies environmental rights in the mm -hmm. Constitution, just, just things like that that could help balance on right to farm law. So those are some of the ideas that we have very generally. It, it sounds like a project for a collaboration of sociologists and legal scholars and engaged <laughs> with community members and farmers uh, to help us think through. So uh, you folks have done a really tremendous job of helping to document uh, the harms and the history here, but also to give us a roadmap for, for where uh, we might go. And so with that in mind, uh, I will finish up uh, and appreciate your, your generosity with your time today. We'll finish up with what's the traditional New Books Network final question which is, uh, what are you working on or thinking about these days? Are you, are you still uh, finding yourself uh, deeply engaged on, on right-to-farm law specifically or other areas of your work in, in rural sociology? I would love to hear what you're up to. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I always have so many ideas and, and probably not enough discipline on anyone. <laughs> but, um, you know, this ownership question has really taken over my mind and all of my time and these other wonderful teams of people I'm working with which is uh, we've been doing a lot of work on finding the ultimate beneficiaries of land acquisitions and then the ultimate beneficiaries of the, the largest global U.S. agribusinesses. Hmm. So that's where my time and attention is right now is looking at those networks, piercing through the corporate veils, all the um, web-like functions that are used you know, to offshore risks like you were talking about earlier and how can we actually find them and to what extent can we find them and look at the global level of control, because this is a very U.S.-centered project. And yeah. so I think the global power has become much more uh, pronounced in my mind. And then, um, so we're just doing a lot of work to try to pierce through that, through compiling new data sets and the like. And wonderful. Yeah, a lot yeah. of work, but a lot of important uh, data to dig into. Uh, and we look forward to hearing what comes of that maybe uh, in a future episode of the New Books Network. And so I want to thank our guest today. Loka Ashwood is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Kentucky and the lead author on Empty Fields, Empty Promises, a State-by-State -State Guide to Understanding and Transforming the Right to Farm. This has been a very informative uh, and in some ways hopeful uh, at the end there. There, at least uh, a discussion about the problems, but also about some of these potential solutions. So thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to chat thank with you. Thank you, Garrett. Really fun. Thank you so much. 